Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> You are listening to Undesign, a conversation series about untangling the big issues that matter. Undesign is brought to you by Draw History, the strategy and design consultancy for social change. I'm your host, Costa, and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these big challenges. So listen in and see where you fit in the solution as we go on to undesign the concept of online extremism and counter-speech. Now, it's safe to say we've all been digital witnesses to some pretty troubling things in our social media feeds in recent times, even without going to look for them. For all of the good that the internet seemed to promise at the beginning, the bad and the ugly are becoming all too easy to find and even without meaning to. I mean, how often have you scrolled past comment sections on news articles that devolve into a slur-slinging fight or a mutinous stir? Or... How often do you come across an acquaintance or a distant family friend sharing a piece of dodgy news or a meme that you know is just cover for some derogatory and hateful content? Or worse still, how often have you come across something like graphic footage or even a live stream of a terrorist attack? And these are merely in addition to all of the concerning behaviour we don't see in our feeds, like how terrorist groups use social media and gaming platforms both for recruitment and operational purposes. Not only does this behavior pose a risk in the most obvious sense, but what about the risks to our psychological well-being that come from constantly being exposed to such content? What do we do? Do we censor? Do we demonetize, deplatform, moderate, fix those dreaded algorithms? What happens when we actually engage with what is being said, also known as counterspeech? Helping us understand this very serious challenge is today's special guest, Dr. Aaron Saltman. Erin is currently the Director of Programming for the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism and formerly Facebook's Head of Counterterrorism and Dangerous Organizations Policy for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And she has a plethora of experience working with multi-sector stakeholders in building out CVE programs across the world. We really take this conversation back to basics by re-establishing what we actually mean by online extremism and counter-speech and why we're even talking about these issues. Erin then takes us through the findings of her multi-year research projects with Facebook, which explored how do people actually behave in relation to said counter-speech, and her findings might actually surprise you. We also talk about the roles of governments and tech orgs in dealing with online extremism. Now, it's fair to say that responses by big tech and governments in this space could be said to be a bit of a collective work in progress. And Erin shed some extremely valuable insight into not only why that is, but also what she thinks is the best role for these big players. And most importantly, we talk about the everyday user. What can and should we do to take power back? While there's a lot that is out of our immediate control, Aaron guides us through the multitude of things we can do to move out of our own echo chambers and also what we can do in response to the hateful or extreme content we might come across in our midst. Hey, Erin, how are you? 
Well, good morning from my side. I think it's a good afternoon on your side of the it's world. It's a good afternoon over here. Thank you so much for joining us for uh, another episode of Undesign, where we're going to be talking about uh, the big scary world of online extremism and counter speech. Um, yeah, big topic. A topic we both know pretty well, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think we <laughs> we picked the right day and the right time to be talking about this. Absolutely, and you know, I guess. First question I want to throw out there, you know, just to avoid us from nerding out straight away, we can do that as we keep going, is what is counter speech to you? How would you define it to someone that is not necessarily in, in, in this area of work? And why are we even talking about it? Well, I think if you go back maybe 10 or 15 years, counter speech, counter narratives, alternative narratives, these are all kind of talking about the same thing. These words really didn't even exist in the public domain 10 or 15 years ago. These came about mm. along with the increased awareness on Islamist extremist recruitment, particularly as soon as it started touching on white Westerners joining a group like the so-called Islamic State, if we're really honest. Yeah. Um, there had been there had been some counter-extremism NGOs, but the idea of a counter-narrative, an alternative narrative, uh, that lingo only is more recent. Now, it's not mm. more recent if we really just look at it as targeted strategic communications. Right. And what counter speech, if we use it as a catch-all term is, mm. is any effort, particularly online, to undermine, redirect, challenge, or provide an alternative to hate-based extremist narratives. Okay. And, hate-based and so, ex yeah, Sorry, and I hate hate-based extremist because right. if we just say extremism, there's really no confines of what that means. I mean, right. what is it to be extreme? And a lot of times that's branded as a positive. There's extreme peaceniks out there and we want to probably promote them. So, yes, that's right. So I think that we, we want to see it. We don't want to give it too much form in the definition as well because as soon as you go online, counter speech could be a video, a trending meme, uh, a grouping around a hashtag, a mobilization right. or coordination around an event. So counter speech can take on a lot of different forms. Okay. It's interesting that you mentioned hate-based extremism before, because like you said, you know, being extreme is not in and of itself a morally bad thing or illegal or anything like that. So my question there, and at the risk of drawing a bit of a binary here, is like, how do you define hate? Yeah, well, and it's not illegal to be hateful of something. You can hate pizza or particularly pineapple on pizza. You can hate many things and <laughs> it's not going to... a big debate. It's a yeah. huge debate. I'm a no pineapple person. I'm sorry for oh, really? I'm, if you're pro pineapple. I'm actually indifferent, we just, which is a weird position. I, I'm so much of a fence sitter, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Anyway, back to hatred, besides, yeah. uh, you know, pineapple. Pineapple and otherwise. We're really talking about xenophobic hate-based extremism. We're really looking at things like the United Nations protected categories of people. So if you are hating someone, not because of their dislike of certain pizza types, but hating someone based on race, religion, gender, gender identity, right. um, nationality. And so we're looking at those protected categories of identity and if mm -hmm. you are hateful and spreading an ideology of hate and or incitement or dehumanization mm -hmm. because of those qualities, which nobody can choose for themselves, these are qualities you're born with, then that's sure. the sort of hate-based extremism we're looking to undermine. Okay, right. It's interesting because 
you know, the, the through line between hatred and ash, the actual committing of violence, right, is not necessarily so straightforward. And I guess recent events have really brought that to light. You know, we saw the storming of Capitol Hill. Um, we've seen uh, various, um, you know, very unfortunate mass shootings that have been sort of, uh, you know, where social media, I guess the role of social media in the internet has been implicated in in causing it or being related to it in some way. From your purview and your experience to date, how would you describe the role of the internet in people's decisions to take up radical violence or extreme violence of this nature? Because it's it's the easiest boogeyman to blame, but you know the reality is often so much more complex. So how would you describe that to people? Like where the internet f- actually fits into whether people do these things or not? Yeah, I think that this is one of the hot topics of the day is how much is it the fault of the internet that people radicalize in the first place? Yep. And obviously, I work for the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. I previously yep. spent four years as the head of dangerous organizations policy at Facebook for EMEA, uh, mm. Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And before yep. that, spent time in a couple different think tanks, NGOs, specifically as a practitioner looking at right. strategically deploying counter speech. So mm-hmm. what I found, what the research shows, just going to data, because there's a lot of opinions and we want to try to stick to some facts, is that I've seen little to no real cases of auto-radicalization, where right. I always joke, but you go online shopping for shoes and accidentally became a jihadist. <laughs> or, oh, look, I was just trying to buy something on Amazon and now I'm a white supremacist. Yeah. So I don't see that. But because on social media, we create self-selective echo chambers. We do by default. Everyone has the things they like, the things they don't. You can go down certain rabbit holes. You can, depending on the nature of how you're engaging, come across Mm. people that are proactively even potentially recruiting based on your identity and what they see in that. And so we do see that the online processes can be a catalyst for radicalization and can be a facilitator. And that should not be a surprise because all of us use the online tools to do very specific things, to communicate quickly, globally, cheaply and coordinate a bunch of logistics around our lives. And so you can imagine that violent extremist groups use those platforms for all the same reasons, just for violent extremist purposes. Mm, It's interesting because I guess social media companies, whether Facebook, Twitter, whatever, um, they are designed for a specific purpose and they are being used to their fullest extent. And I guess maybe one thing that we realize in, you know, if you look at the history of terrorism and any sort of uh, violent resistance movements or whatever, um, the role of technology has played a huge, oh, it, you know, it's played a huge part in how these uh, their methods evolve. You know, even with the printing press as that big technological advancement, we were able to disseminate things much more in a way that we weren't able to also. But it doesn't necessarily mean the material is changing people's minds. You, there's a certain, is it fair to say that you still have to be looking for this stuff to to be affected by it? Or is it quite common? I mean, what's your view on how easy it is to find and be exposed to like radicalizing, quote unquote, extremist content? Well, I think that this is where we start getting into some controversial gray areas, because a lot of extremism blends increasingly into parts of mainstream politics, parts of mainstream identity cultures. And so there's a large gray area that is 
extremist starting to verge on what might be considered hate speech, but doesn't quite break any policy line. It's controversial, but it's not illegal. It would be very much protected speech, but you can see that it's going in the direction of if we talk about social identity theory, self and other, yeah, sure. othering of right. certain groups in a negative yep. light. And this is the prime space where it might be hard for a tech company to build a policy to remove that. Human rights would say that's a vast over breach of over censorship, but that's the prime spot for counter speech. That is the prime area where you want to engage in that space in a strategic mm. way. Now, I also want to debunk some myths, if that's okay, Please. around uh, the, fl the floor is yours. <laughs> who can be an extremist? And I just want to point out that we are all susceptible to forms of extremism because of our own confirmation biases. We all have extremely strong confirmation biases. If we hear a piece of news that we would naturally already agree with, we're going to mm. agree with it and probably not question the facts behind it. If we hear a piece of news that completely 180 goes against, our preconceived notions, that's when we question its source. So you also have to think of if somebody is already down an extremist loop, whether that's a QAnon theory or whether that's um, an Islam Islamist extremist narrative around um, vaccine denial, which we see a lot of the mm. extreme groups right now are all about vaccine denial. Um, then we can see that if you're going to try to shove a counter narrative at them that completely opposes their opinion, it's not going to land because yep. it goes completely against their confirmation bias. So even if you want to approach the counter-extremism space, you need to know who is the credible voice that they will even allow into their space, what is the credible message that maybe finds them at a common ground and then leaves space to pivot from that common ground, and then what's the right platform to reach them on. So you might make right. a, a really sexy campaign on one platform, but all the target audience that you're trying to reach is on another platform. Well, then you just yes. spend a lot of time in the wrong place. Right, right. Uh, it's kind of that, that you know, as we've, uh, as, you know, any sort of guidance note in counter-narrative development or counter-speech development, you know, those golden elements of credibility and authenticity are pretty key in terms of, you know, whether something lands, you know, permitting that you're in the right place, as you say. Which I guess, you know, kind of makes me then circle back to this idea of the role of counter-speech, right, in the online space. You know, we think about a lot of intervention types, you know, to try and make the internet a safer place and social media a safer place to be, like takedowns, moderation. What do we know about what counter-speech, what effect it actually does on, you know, receptive or not very receptive audiences? Does it actually work? I feel like there's a lot of cynicism towards that. Well, uh, that, huge. Those, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> As we've discussed elsewhere, but yeah, like, can you speak to that a little bit more? Like, why are people so down on counter speech? Do you think? Well, it's not not everyone is down on counter speech, and, and it really depends on the country and culture you're living in on what counter speech means or how it's been deployed correctly or incorrectly, targeting your yep. community or not your community. And so there's some legacy work to remedy around, I think. Um, on yep. the one hand, to a previous point you made, you know, tech companies still need robust policies to remove violating content. So as soon as it's no longer gray area and it is hate speech or it is incitement, those policies need to be in place to be able to remove that according to terms of service. So the big companies, when you look, when you look at their transparency reports, they're removing millions of pieces of content around these themes every quarter or every half. So it's quite robust. 
it never robust enough. There's always the stuff that gets through the gaps. But then you have to supplement that with the counter speech, because really, if we censor, you can't censor your way out of a problem. Removing content is targeting a symptom, not a cause. Right. So censorship takes the symptomatic hate speech, the symptomatic lines of hate off, and it doesn't get at that spiritual core, which is why is somebody feeling that this is their voice, that this is their truth, that this is their ideology. Um, and so counter speech is the only way to try to get at that. Now, there are, there are some theories that have gone out in some research, and some of it's inconclusive previously about, well, does it work? Can you actually measure behavioral change or sentiment analysis? And thankfully, right. I was able to be a part of a really robust three and a half years of testing two different methodologies um, around counter speech deployment, uh, mm. taking full advantage of my role at Facebook at the time and working with some incredible data scientists and engineers. Great. And even to approach that topic, step one was realizing that, for example, Facebook was not the credible voice. Facebook right. will never be the credible voice. If Facebook sends you a little bot or message and says, don't be an extremist, that's yeah. not going to be the voice <laughs> that turns you away from a hate-based ideology. Yeah, sure. Um, nor is government usually. And, and I've worked yeah, with some I was very just about to say that. sympathetic governments that really want to put their voice out there in the right place. And it's good. But again, they are probably not going to be the most credible voice with particularly vulnerable communities that might right. not have that trust layer to begin with. And so we just even to try to start a partnership with Facebook at scale to deploy counter speech in a in a methodological framework, we had to partner with localized NGOs, NGOs that were right. creating really credible, emotional and compelling content that we tested previously that had worked online that we knew was resonating with the right audiences. Mm. Um, you know, the next question is, well, what are you actually trying to counter? Yeah. Um, and, and then the third question is, well, if you have that voice to counter, what are you trying to do with that audience? So if I say, don't be an extremist and it actually resonates with you at all, then what? That's the big yeah, question. Sure. So I can, yeah, that's right. I can try to undermine your current thinking, which is already a pretty precarious position to be in, but then what do I replace it with? Or am I going to just leave you in this spiritual void, which many authors have written about of you can undermine extremism and then you leave someone in a very vulnerable place for backsliding because you've left them with, you know, all the things of why they joined a violent extremist group are actually usually very positive. People want to people want to think that others join violent extremist groups, one, because they're crazy, yeah. uh, which is not the case. We have very normative frameworks. If you're a lone actor carrying out violence, there are much higher likelihoods of mental health issues at play. If you're a group joiner, really normative frameworks behind the scenes right. of group right. joiners. Um, so the, so it's not, hey, you're crazy. That would be an oversimplification. The second is yeah. usually, oh, you joined because you were economically disadvantaged. So it was mm. a poor you situation. And when we look at recruitment of foreign terrorist fighters, when we look at a lot of the leadership around certain violent extremist groups, whether we're talking about neo-Nazi and white supremacy groups or Islamist extremist groups or Buddhist extremist groups, they're educated. They come from a hugely mixed background, age ranges. When I did work at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, uh, a great researcher, Melanie Smith, and I looked at just Western females that were joining ISIS. Right. And they, that age range was from like 
13 to 45 and education from very little all the way up to PhDs, actual medical doctors joining. Yeah. So that we need to debunk as well. We have to realize we're communicating with humans and that they joined for reasons like finding an amazingly supportive social network, finding what they believe to be a social cause to help the world. They think they're changing the world for the better. Um, Those are the right qualities for a peace builder usually, Um, but they've been allured by the violent extremist narrative. Um, And so that can be very compelling. And that's what we want to try to structurally undermine and redirect. Right. That's, I guess, what just came to mind there as you were saying that is this idea of these values that are very pro-social, right? Like they're, they're things that arguably we would all be motivated by in our own lives, you know, for connection, for purpose, but then to then hold those beliefs and potentially support or do something really violent, you know, which is in direct violation of those values, I would think. How do you think, what do you think is the thinking there? And maybe this is a bit beyond the scope of the online space, but it can also be a bit of a insight into what it actually offers people to hold those two contradictory thoughts at once. How does how do you go from having such positive values to doing something quite destructive you know in that way is it yeah I I don't know is that anything you have any thoughts on yeah this is this is a great question that I'm pleased to say many an author have grappled with before me including very well-known individuals like Professor Bruce Hoffman um, and others but a lot of this questioning we should not think of as new a lot of people questioned Mm. this for example after World War II when you saw many normal societal individuals join the Nazi party and carry out extreme abhorrent acts against their fellow man. And from a lot of the research I've seen, I kind of break it down into three things that are very necessary to turn someone from maybe somewhat extreme into a violent agent. You know, first, you really have to solidify that self-other dynamic. What is my in-group? Who am I and my group? And then who is the out-group? Who is the enemy? And you see in violent extremist language, whatever the ideology behind it, this self and other, whether it's an incel movement and it's men versus the Chads and Stacys, yeah, um, sure. you know, this, this can take many forms, but that self othering where that other is very crystallized and more defined than the self, you're actually, your in group is less defined than your out group, but you find yeah, common yeah. ground in who you're defining as the other. And then the secondary layer on that is the dehumanization process. You really need Mm -hmm. to dehumanize somebody to justify violence against them or against that group. And that you see in all these violent extremist groups, you start seeing that language comparing people to, if you look at the the Rwanda genocide, comparing people to cockroaches and rats. If you look at anti-Semitic comments, comparing people to certain other dehumanized tropes or uh, anti-Muslim bigotry that uses animal terminology to try to dehumanize people. So that's when you dehumanize a group, you don't mind killing a cockroach. You don't mind putting out a rat trap. And so that's part of the psychological breakdown as well. And then the third point that you see that is quite crucial is 
the in-group using militarized language. So calling each other things like soldier, comrade, taking on these rule of law roles because they don't trust the situation with the actual rule of law. They don't trust the system to carry it out. So they start taking on militaristic language and militaristic tropes for themselves. So I think that Mm. self and other plus dehumanization, crystallizing, and the self proclaimed military role, that's when you start seeing that justification of violence. Right. Uh, it's such a disturbing, you know, it's a, it's such a disturbing set of constructions, right? But when, again, when you dive into the stories of how people go down this road and where the intentions start, you're like, wow, this actually started off in a, in a much more innocent place. And it can, it's, it's, it's clear to me hearing you say those things that that there are certain emotional needs that they those sort of constructions fulfill, right? Maybe in dehumanizing others or in a in a stronger group identification, there that's playing on fear and safety and things like that, or you know, um, trying to further or protect one's own family or one's own group. You know, like those are things again that apply to us at any moment in our lives in to varying degrees. Well, I, I think something you raised really made me reflect on the fact that what we are also seeing, if you kind of boil down why extremist narratives succeed, we live in such a confusing, nuanced, global, complicated world. And if somebody comes along and tells you, actually, it's not complicated. It's because Mm. of this one or these one or two things. That's why the world around you is in mayhem. And so if you can take complicated worldview and boil it down into really binary, easy to digest, good and evil tropes, it's it's a lot easier for our brain to comprehend as well. It's a lot easier for us to say, oh, my God, you're right. So when you see things like an immigration or a refugee crisis and you are struggling with your job, it's a lot easier to have somebody come and say, oh, well, it's new world order. And here's why these refugees are given better status than you. And you deserve more. And here's why they're the enemy. And and all of a sudden, instead of actually under, having to understand really complicated global geopolitics and economics and human rights law and protect and safety and shelter and understanding conflicts in countries you've never been in, you were just allowed to have a trope that simplifies and clarifies the narrative. And that's mm. that's actually very calming to parts of your brain. Of course. And again, if we're talking about people, uh, you know, who by sort of objective measures have high intelligence, right? If they, if you've got PhD, doctors, um, you know, successful people in, in the traditional sense, there's a weird, again, another disconnect between like, the desire for a simple worldview, but also this ability to actually use their brain for very complex uh, tasks and, you know, and, and be very high functioning. So for me, that kind of says that there's like this weird disconnect between like the intellect and the emotions that some people might feel that can kind of, when you're a bit smarter, or smarter, I say that in quotation marks, um, perhaps these emotions can be easier to rationalize um, if you're feeling really strongly, you know, I guess what I'm getting at here is there's a really strong emotional pull that makes that the the intellect can sort of mold or or fold itself around. Um, do you think it's fair to say? And I've again, I've always had this feeling myself, but you know, there's a lot of discussion around how successfully extremist groups actually market their propaganda. 
Do you think they just have an easier job? <laughs> well, I think that marketing-wise, they do have an easier job because their message yeah. is simplified, it's direct, and it's clear. And whereas, and the call to time, action is very clear. And the call to action is clear, and the enemy is clear. And yeah. so, to counteract that by trying to say, "No, actually, it's really confusing and messy," <laughs> that's not a very good marketing campaign. So yes. when you look at good counter speech, it's not about that. It's usually, well, there's a difference between what we might call preventing violent extremism and so PVE content versus countering violent extremism, CVE right. content. And the reason for that is there's a lot of content out there that is about building natural resiliency among communities, especially among young people, so that if they come across some of these extremist hate-based narratives, they're better prepared to kind of throw them to one side or question the source. Mm. When we talk about counter-extremism, we're talking about trying to reach people that are already showing symptoms, in essence, of adhering to certain violent extremist ideological tropes. So they're right. already starting to share some questionable comments. They're already starting to shut down other parts of their social network and be more involved in some of these more formal or decentralized hate-based groups. And so those are the groups that are the hardest to reach. And those mm. tend to be the online communities um, that I, in my own research, and with a lot of other amazing, brilliant people that I've piggybacked off of their brilliance, that I've worked with to try to deploy counter speech more proactively. And right. that's the big that's the big golden question, is that you have Tech companies have the technology, so they have the ability to upscale, optimize, and target things. Whereas most NGOs and practitioners and grassroots organizers, or even former extremists, which are some of the most compassionate, active, and incredible practitioners I've ever worked with, yeah. they are the credible voices, um, but they are not the tech companies. And so yes. The golden goose egg is combining the tech for what it's good at, upscaling, optimizing, targeting, with the credibility and voices and local nuance and understanding of those activist efforts. And so that's right. what, you know, when I when I spent my sojourn at Facebook, that's what my goal was, was to develop some of those. And again, not, not Facebook specific. Some of those models mm. were begging and borrowing and stealing from uh, the forefathers of things like the redirect method, which was built out by Jigsaw and was originally developed for Google search and YouTube. Yes. Um, so that's kind of understanding, okay, if you are searching proactively for very specific violent extremist related terms, how can you redirect those search results to be counter speech, to provide alternatives, to provide resources to undermine the hate-based narrative? Yeah. Now, Facebook's a little different to Google search. You go on Google to search for websites, instruction, yeah. guidance. You go on Facebook and Instagram to search for people in groups. Yes. The way that people search tends to be for people in groups. So when we created our own methodology, we were able to partner with some very strategic NGOs. Um, we had to, first you have to decide what language am I targeting in? What country am I looking at? What ideology am I trying to undermine? So all of that has to be at the forefront, you, there's no one counter narrative to rule them all. It has to be of very Of course, nuanced. I wish. Yeah. I know. It'd be so easy. It'd be um, so easy. So we, we had to do that with a lot in thought. And we ended up, for the A-B testing of the redirect method, we looked first at Islamist extremist 
uh, narratives and tropes around people that had been sharing and engaging with known terrorist content. So not just extreme content, but labeled and verified terrorist content. And we looked at um, Arabic and English in the UK and Iraq and partnered with NGOs that were producing localized targeted content um, in those spaces. So the Adyan Foundation in Lebanon, which had a lot of Iraq-specific content that they developed out, um, Connect Futures in here in the UK, where I'm based, that was doing a lot of local engagement and had done everything from things around the far right to Islamist extremism, and they had a lot of local practitioners. Um, and then we worked with ICSVE with Dr. Ann Speckard, who's a social psychologist who had done a lot of interviews with with quote unquote jihadists that were in jail, um, having been put in jail after joining the so-called Islamic State. So right. we had both upstream and downstream hard hitting and softer content that we took from these NGOs. And so we used that to really deploy more strategic counter speech. So the other thing that a lot of these campaigns, if you consider it just an online marketing campaign, mm-hmm. in order to measure behavioral change, you can't just throw someone a one-off campaign and say, did that do enough? So Mm. we did some work with some amazing Stanford research students that were doing a master's to test rates and frequencies around counter speech. Like how much and how often would I have to show you a message for it to resonate with you? Right. And that's never been tested before in this space. It has been tested in other marketing schemes, but marketing an idea and how the rate and frequency of an idea around counter extremism hadn't really been tested. And mm-hmm. in their very contained environment, they found that if you focused and could ensure that someone saw about two to three pieces of content a day for five to seven days, you could, in fact, measure uh, a change in sentiment. So they were wow. they okay. did before and after tests. And for their testing, they actually looked at opinions on gay marriage rights in Australia. So you oh, know, we didn't right. dictate for them. So they pivoted yep. and looked at that. And so we took that rate and frequency model, and that's what we tested with. So we, wow. we used something, and tell me if I'm getting too technical, we used something no, called go a, for it. a quick promotion instead of just okay. normal ads. Because if I target you with ads, first of all, I can't tell if the same person, I mean, you don't have personally identifiable information. So I can't tell that the same person is going to see something more than once. I can't control any rate and frequency. It's kind of like a scatter scattered approach. But with quick promotions, we could say, okay, we only want to target people that have, in fact, shared and and or engaged with a known piece of terrorist content. And then we want to put them through this pipeline where they get two to three pieces of content a day for five to seven days. And again, a one-off mm-hmm. violation doesn't get you kicked off a platform. It gives you a warning. You have transparency that you've been warned about it. But, you know, one-offs don't get you kicked off. So that was really interesting because in the aftermath well, there were a couple findings with that test model. And we did another test model around white supremacy and neo-Nazism yep. because I'm right. a masochist. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the, fun the, stuff. the A-B testing showed us a few things that I think are really important. One was that when we first look at the statistical analysis, and I think something like 37,000 people were went through the pipeline of this kind of rate and frequency testing of counter speech. The first important thing is we saw no signs of increased radicalization from going through this process, because there are some people that rightfully question, you're dealing with vulnerable communities, is counter speech going to somehow further radicalize them? Yeah. If it's not handled sensitively, 
you could actually push someone more in an extreme space. So um, it's very good to point out that we did a lot of precautions around it, but there were no no indications that somebody further or exponentially changed their rate or shared more bad content because of this exposure. So that's important. Right. Okay. So it was like a, a net do no harm. A do. Yeah. Very, we absolutely wanted to prove at that the do very no least. harm was possible at the least. Right. The that's second good. was that statistically, initially, it didn't show any real significant change. But when we worked with a qualitative researcher, my co-author, Carly Vockery, so the, on the quantitative side, I had this amazing data scientist, um, Farshad Kudi, And on mm-hmm. the qualitative side, I worked with this amazing researcher, Carly Vockery. And Carly and I started going through it and realized even by targeting people that had shared and engaged with terrorist content, there was a lot of noise because right. as we know, as practitioners, a lot of researchers share terrorist content. A lot yeah. of journalists sometimes share terrorist content. A lot of activists that are pointing to it and saying, this is abhorrent. This does not represent my people share this type mm. of content. So one-off indicators, even if it's a hard indicator, like you violate a platform, you shared really dodgy content. Yeah. That is not a good enough indicator that you are an extremist. Mm. That's I mean, important I think that we don't unduly target people. Of course. I mean, you just brought to mind a terrible example that I was very familiar with, which was the sharing of the live stream video of the Christchurch um, shootings. People sharing that for all sorts of reasons, ranging from outrage to just disbelief to not knowing exactly what it was. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, very clear violation. And obviously that's that's an extreme example. But, um, yeah, that just brought to mind like, man, you know, one of the other guests that we had on on Undesign referred to it kind of, so not necessarily the extreme stuff like that, but the sort of the outrage porn type stuff yeah. where, where you're talking about pretty contested issues that, you know, kind of fall more in that gray area or actually, or, you know, do they fall in that gray area or are they things that generally breach? Well, it, it kind of depends what type of content it is. It really depends on the sure. platform, what the policy line is. But yep. for example, the Christchurch video, all of that was removed. Yes. I remember I was at Facebook at the time and it, we removed something like 1.5 million shares of that video within the first 24 hours alone. Wow. Now, if you were to say those 1.5 million are all white supremacist or neo-Nazi sympathizers or yeah. um, anti-Muslim bigotry individuals, that would be ridiculous but i think even twitter's statistics showed that something like 70 percent of those that shared the video the sharing came from verified accounts so it was not those oh wow that were there to support it it was those that are saying this is horrible oh my god have you seen this i can't believe this have you seen this sharing it to kind of create awareness and so that was an important find in our own study to weed out the noise that's also important because you do see that you know sometimes law enforcement or government would like to say, "Hey, they're sharing illegal content. Give us, give us the profiles proactively of individuals that are sharing terrorist content." And you're like, "Well, we need a lot of other due diligence around that sort of process because mm. then you would share a bunch of journalists and academics and researchers and practitioners, and and that's actually way above and beyond what you want to proactively be sharing and labeling as." extremist sympathizers. So once we weeded that out and found the more targeted group within the group that we thought was already targeted, we did see positive behavioral change. We saw that in fact, 
they didn't share any more violating content. So when we looked at the A-B testing of the likelihood to share more content, usually you're going to have another violation within about 90 days. Mm. They actually stopped violating. Right. Which is, there are two things to take away from that, if I may. The, yes, please. The one thing is, that's amazingly good. So that yeah. is... That's great because it means that they are not putting more violating content out that others could engage with. Right. The caveat to that is that behavioral change is not the same as sentiment change. So mm. I'm not 100% sure you could have stopped because the counter speech was compelling. You could have also stopped your behavior in that direction because you thought Facebook's targeting me with counter speech. They oh, are thinking sure. I'm dodgy. I'm going to change my behavior to evade detection or, or right. so there's, I, it's an unknown, but behavior does not equate sentiment change, but the behavioral change is still a net positive because you're not putting more bad content for wider audiences to see on those bigger platforms. And I guess terrorist content or extremist content relies on being seen and consumed, you know, so like right. to even starve it of that oxygen that a social media uh, platform might afford it. Uh, by it not existing on the platform for whatever reason, generally that is a good thing. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And then, but then we get to the question of, well, can you influence sentiment? Really, people that create counter speech, the goal is to create a sentiment shift within somebody to say, actually, I'm not going to target the Muslim community with my hatred, or I'm not going to target the Jewish community, or I'm not going to target somebody just because they come from this country or have this sexuality. I mean, the LGBTQIA plus community is targeted by all yeah. of these violent extremist groups. Oh, man. So they cop it from forget. all sides. They, yeah. they get really, really lambasted and, and really different types of abuse that's very visceral. So in the second testing that we did, we looked yep. at the concept a little bit more around search redirection. So instead okay. of putting direct counter narratives into something like your news feed, um, we went to the search function on Facebook and Instagram, and we wanted to look at neo-Nazism and white supremacy related search terms, groups and individuals. So again, going back to mm. some of that redirect methodology. Yep. And we worked with a, a, an incredible NGO at first called Life After Hate that's based oh, in, yes. Yes. It's based in the US. Um, and they have an incredible team. You know, it was also founded by a group of former extremists, but also they have practitioners and, and some in, incredible people working with them and, a, and very much a do no harm principle with a lot of resources on how to help disengage someone. Because ultimately, that's the question of, well, what do you do now? Now that you even could say, okay, I want to leave a group. It's really hard to leave some of these groups. They are your family. Where to next? They're yeah. your life. Sometimes they've helped you get your job. Um, and so leaving can actually put you or your family at risk depending, yeah. especially some of these white supremacy neo-Nazi groups, leaving can be very difficult. Mm. So we looked at white supremacy and neo-Nazi links in the US and worked with Life After Hate on developing these terms, so co-developed with the NGO, whereby it was just something very basic. Initially, redirect on, on Google and YouTube, it's kind of a search term, and then you scatter the counter speech or the other messaging in the search results. This was more unidirectional. So when you used some of these search terms, if we thought you were looking to find, again, groups or individuals related to some of these white supremacy and neo-Nazi groups, mm -hmm. at the top of your search results, it gave you the option to connect with life after hate. So right. it, was, it was very basic. It was transparent. There was transparent language saying, 
Facebook supports partnerships with NGOs. Mm. It said who Life After Hate was. And then it's up to the individual. When they clicked, they would go to the Life After Hate page. So you'd go off of Facebook or Instagram. And there you provide, there's helpful resources, there's videos and testimonials from formers. And so you could get disengagement support. And that testing, they found that they had kind of a 200% increase on traffic to their site. And we were able to work with them and they found that their caseload of actual individuals going towards them doubled or tripled of people actually reaching out saying, I need, I need some help, man. That's, that's profound. That's profound. That sentiment shift. That's somebody saying, okay, I didn't even know there was a resource to leave. Um, And after that fact, we expanded this to some different countries with some different partnerships. So that's now in some of that's going on in Australia, Indonesia, Germany, and a specific one around QAnon. So if you type in some doggy QAnon terms, it also redirects you to some more academic information of debunking some of those conspiracies. So that was great. It was more unidirectional. And that's really compelling to see, okay, these public-private partnerships, they can work. They, they right. really do have that potential to not just try to censor and deplatform people, but actually provide them support, provide them alternatives, provide them that narrative that they can grasp to. Wow. I just want to reflect this back to you just to make sure I've understood sort of the core of this, you know, particularly for those listening in as well. So, you know, you had this sort of the two mainstreams of research going on, right? Where you've got the sort of the, the not true, not counter narrative style, but sort of the exposure to sort of counter speech content. And then you've got the referral stream to um, actual support sort of services and offline uh, supports and things like that. So in, in that first stream, you know, we saw a net no harm sort of approach with some like uh, sparks of like positive, at least positive observable behavior for the most part, like, you know, yeah, pending the ambiguity that you can't necessarily, like not everyone's online behavior reflects what they really think. You're kind of like overall, the the impact it leaves on the online space is a positive one. Right. But then with the redirect kind of assessment where people are being pointed to an alternative um, or guided to an alternative, they are treated with respect by being transparent in, in, you know, in how this option has come to their attention and they've taken up that sort of offer to go in a different direction. You've activated people's agency and you've seen actually a good response to that sort of approach. Is that like a pretty, a very basic download of, of the research findings. Yeah, that's a very, you saved me the last 10 minutes. I could have just pivoted to you and you could have given that 16 second breakdown. I'm going to use that elevator pitch next time. Oh, look, free to a good home. As long as I've understood it, it means you've done a great job explaining it. Because that's really, um, I guess it's, look, this is a really good way, place to sort of pivot back to where the role of counter speech is and like what the role of the different players are, right? Because you made this point and again, in my own experience, we we kind of come across this all the time where like government are not the right people for these messages. Facebook, social media are not the right people for these messages, right? Right. What is their role? What is their ideal role? Or what is their what is their best use in this fight to minimize the harm and the various harms 
you know, whether it's exposure, whether it's going down a, a really violent path. What is what is the role of these bigger players in this space, yeah. from your view? And I think I think this is such a key point because when when each of our sectors and now I'm I'm the example of somebody that went from academia to NGO practitioner to tech company, now back to NGO practitioner. So I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. kind of a, a sector crosser, uh, if oh, you will. Look, that's why you're the first person we came to for this, <laughs> for this topic. Yeah. And, um, and I really think that we only get to a real crucial impact point when each of our sectors does what they do best. We right. get to a, a sort of, we get to a bad point when sectors try to do what they're not good at mm. in a way that could be harmful. So right. governments have an important role to play. A lot of that is in providing the infrastructure, time and space to community groups to have this time and space to develop, to do what they do best in developing their authentic voice, to developing programs and alternatives. So again, mm. I can maybe create a very swanky campaign to undermine some of this hate-based rhetoric, but then what? Where does somebody turn to? If they don't have both online and offline community support, and I don't say that because it's light and fluffy. I say it because mm. that's what's effective. So I want to yeah. be very clear. This is not just we a the agenda. Mm. We know that if you're going to undermine, you then need to redirect someone to another point of, of social brotherhood and sisterhood or of another space that they can use that activism, that positive activism that they wanted to spend in a net positive, do no harm mm -hmm. space. So governments do provide a lot of infrastructure to those communities being able to thrive mm -hmm. and do what they do best in providing social good services to the country or to their locale. Tech companies are in a unique position to, again, be that, that mechanism to work with NGO and CSO partners to take their messages, not take them without permission, but take them yes. and working with them and help upscale, optimize, and target those messages and get right. them to the right people. Because again, you as a general human aren't going to have access to the same tools. You might use some ads marketing tools, which really mm -hmm. works in the prevention space when you're trying to target lots of people. Ads tools are usually optimized when you're trying to reach over 100,000 people. Right. That's good for prevention. Yep. If you're trying to counter a very unique or niche section of society that is indulged in a very specific violent extremist thread, ads marketing tools is not going to get you there. And so that's when you need to work more in coordination on these more strategically designed and carefully designed processes. And I got to tell you, the reason some yeah. of this research took three and a half years is for all the right reasons, although I was sitting there looking at my watch all the time, it had to go through lots of legal review, privacy review, research review, tooling review, like, was I going to sit in there and break the system or yeah. unduly target a population and have it be really harmful? And so a lot of review behind the scenes when it just to be able to launch these two different methods for wow. testing them. Yeah, right. And uh, that kind of brings me to my next question, which was, obviously, this is like, th that's really encouraging results, right? And we have reason to be encouraged that these things can be dealt with. But the fact is, is that this is still a major issue, right? Like, and it's something we are constantly grappling with. It kind of looks a bit different with every passing year, you know? If you had like a magic wand right now to just 
fix one part that you feel is just impeding progress in this space at the moment, what would you do with that magic wand? Oof, this might come off as a little controversial, but sure. I mean, we deal with counter extremism. What's not yeah, exactly about that? Yeah, it would be. So to preface, I would say I started my theoretical background was looking at post-communist, far-right extremist radicalization, specifically in Hungary. That is right. a niche. I've got that, that niche. cornered, right? <laughs> um, I hung out with a, a lot of what we would call far-right extremists in various parts of Hungary for right. quite a while. Mm. And then worked with an organization that just focused on Islamist extremism, where I felt I going into that type of job, I felt extremely out of my depth because I, mm -hmm. to profile myself, I am a white Western female. I have not studied Islam. I do not feel right. comfortable going in and speaking about when we say Islamist extremist jihadism, that's me talking about aspects of potential Islam. I'm not qualified yep. to do that. So I spent yep. a good year or two working with those to make sure I was working with people that did understand that, that came from a background of that. But mm -hmm. I think what was most shocking to me was that all my theory base was completely the same. Violent extremism has different wrapping paper. But the core push and pull factors that bring people into violent extremist groups, I really would argue, are pretty they much don't. identical. So if I, had a magic, if I had a magic wand, it would be to have society at large stop orientalizing what violent extremism is so that when all of a sudden we see, yet again, a white male, white supremacy-driven attacker we don't sit there and go, oh my God, we don't know how to deal with this. Right. We have all the theoretical background because we, first of all, it's not new that we have that sort of attacker. But secondly, that we have done so much work around Islamist extremist jihadism when we look at white Western governments because the fear was othering as well. We othered right. what a quote unquote jihadist looks like. And so a lot of money went towards that. And we don't know always how to deal with domestic threat in the same way because it's not the other. It's what we would normally consider our own in-group. It looks like us. Right. And so I think if I had a magic wand, it would be to say, we have all the tools and learnings to adequately approach this. We should not see it as completely different from all the learnings we've established over the last 10 years looking at a group like ISIS. We just need to repackage a lot of those learnings with the different localized credible groups that have been yep. dealing with those ideologies for many years. Right. That's a pretty good answer, actually, because it kind of actually speaks to maybe some of the key problems when we talk about online extremism, where we don't necessarily see the internet as a space like that is essentially an extension of a lot of people's lives, you know, where, you know, but the the way people conduct themselves in that space is usually in reaction or in response to or, you know, in complementarity to their offline worlds, you know, like, like you said, you go shopping, you need shoes, you go shopping online, you know, like these are, you want to talk to someone, uh, you know, you want to kill some time on words with friends, like you've got, you're bored, you go online mm -hmm. and you do that with, you know, like, they, these are social and emotional needs and personal needs that we 
you know, that exist in our bodies and our hearts and our minds that we then go online to to fulfill, you know, it's just another avenue to find all these things. I mean, we haven't even spoken about, you know, the dreaded algorithms and things like that, or, you know, echo chambers in a whole lot of detail, because this is such a massive topic. But I think, you know, maybe that's time for part two, hopefully another part two in the future, right? But I mean, I want, yeah, sorry, uh, did you have anything to expound on those kind of Buzzwords. Oh no! You know we've I, solved that. No, no, yeah, right. you can't just throw in echo chambers and algorithms right at the end. I, I mean, I would say we need to be very specific. If I, if I switch yep. hats to kind of more the gift CT, the global yeah, internet sure. form to counterterrorism, I think one of the other things, if I had a second magic wand, um, <laughs> it would be to help just the communication gap between practitioners and governments and tech companies, because sometimes there's just a slightly different language being spoken. Um, There's a different tech language at play. And so when somebody says, ooh, algorithms, well, an algorithm is what makes the Twitter logo appear in a certain place. An algorithm is what makes your profile picture a certain way. An algorithm is a filter. An algorithm is everything. So what we're really talking about when we say algorithm is a catch-all phrase is the fear that promotional or optimization algorithms are proactively putting extremist content into your feed mm-hmm. because of the way that you were searching for something. That's what we're. Right. That's a really specific part of what people are concerned about. Um, and you do see that a lot of the larger tech companies, for example have already been doing a lot of adjustments to that to discount certain search terms to kind of redirect. That is a constant adversarial shift, though, because as we know, violent extremist groups use coded language, change how they're doing things proactively. They know it's a bit of a cat and mouse. So you have to have civil society and researchers and academics work with the tech companies to constantly be aware of what that looks like so that you can reprogram or insert different filters in it so that you're not inadvertently promoting that. There's some great work being done, for example, by the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. They wrote a paper that's open access just on symbols, slogans, and slurs of the radical right, just to start understanding some of that language. If you look at the Boogaloo movement or QAnon, oh my God, there's so much weird coded language. And a lot of it would be false positives if you tested around it, like where we go one, where we go all, or yes. like follow the white yeah. rabbit. And you're like, am I going to, to an Alice in Wonderland tea party or am I yeah. joining a violent extremist <laughs> movement? Same with some of the iconography. So you look at you the know what? Boogaloo movement. Probably both just as weird. But right? anyway. <laughs> I mean, you look at the Boogaloo movement and someone is wearing a Hawaiian shirt, holding a glass of milk, doing the okay sign. I don't mm. know if they are a dad at a barbecue or a white supremacist. <laughs> Because Boogaloo says, wear a Hawaiian shirt. Actually, they've used Mm. white milk. White supremacists have used white milk as an indicator. And actually, the OK sign is an indicator for white power. So again, dad at a barbecue, white supremacist. Or both. I don't know. Or both. Yeah, not mutually exclusive, unfortunately. (laughs) So um, changing algorithms will not necessarily... There is some of that, that the big companies work with a lot of experts to try to work around. But some of it is not just algorithms. Some of it is the cat and mouse of adversarial shifts. And so we can't algorithm our way out of violent extremism. Violent extremism predates the internet. Most of what we get in our day-to-day from the online services are really positive. We just take it for granted now. You know, you look yep. at not that long ago, we didn't have any of this. And and there's a lot of critique, pro and con around where we're at with the online 
you know, the internet of things, but mm. I would say it's not, there's never one solution. It's not going to be one algorithmic change. It's not going to be one piece of counter speech. It is only when all our sectors come to the table, recognizing we all want the same thing. Very few actors in this space want to further violent extremism. That's a very small percentage of society. But yeah. if we can come not trying to bash heads and point fingers, but say, okay, governments, what's what are the policies that help? What are the infrastructure that gets support to the right communities? Tech companies, what are the toolings you have at play to counter the negative, to put do no harm in place and to upscale and optimize these counter speech initiatives? And then civil society, do your thing. Like, be authentic, be creative, but you need the time, space, support, and money to do that. It's not mm. just, oh, I'll do this in my spare time. You actually need the infrastructure to support that. That's great. And I guess, you know, just as we close out, like in the last few minutes of this discussion, I really want to think about just the everyday person and what their role is in, you know, whether it's counter speech, whether it's looking after other people in their orbit, whether it's feeling they're in an unsafe space online. What do you think, you know, if you've got people that are interested in being a, a good online presence or a proactive like digital citizen, like do you have any sort of advice for them on how like what is the everyday person's best use or, you know, most productive kind of use of their space within their own circles or, yeah, just I, I want to think about the everyday person, you know, like what where do they fit in all of this really? Um I think at a bare minimum, for my magic wand number three, yep. it would be <laughs> to, um, it would be to just say that we all have a little more work to do on questioning our own biases and how we take on facts, quote unquote, facts or information online, myself included. I am constantly trying to go with my bias check and say, oh, but that sounds right. Well, why does yeah. it sound right? It sounds right because I already agree with it. I love people that agree with me. Everyone loves people that agree with them. Oh, and man. so even myself, I have to go and say, huh, what's the source of that? Was that, is that data? Is that opinion or is that fact? Because we are increasingly, as a whole, not just extremists, we go towards what feels, I think Stephen Colbert even said, it's about truthiness, yeah. not truth. So we go with, mm. that sounds right. And when it sounds right, we don't go further. And when it sounds wrong, we adamantly argue against it. Yep. And so I think we all have a kind of role as digital citizens, especially if you're parents with children, but just of like, okay, well, what's the source truth? Is that an opinion or is that a fact? Where am I getting that from? Do, am I only listening to one news outlet or one person all the time? I should probably listen to people I don't agree with. I, I tend to learn more by listening to people that, I don't agree with, even if it riles me up a bit, than if I just stick to my own echo chamber. So I think we all have a little bit of work to do in that space. Right. So that's interesting. And I'm glad you brought up this idea of self-awareness and kind of introspection in in the sort of the, the everyday person sort of role in this, in that, um, you know, it's really easy to see other people's uh, not so great examples of online behavior or just, you know, not necessarily being rigorous with the news that they share, but, you know, are we being sure, are we holding ourselves to the same standards as we might be holding other people? And I guess maybe, do you have any uh, just thoughts to people who, you know, who might come across people in their social spheres, on their social media that are sharing, like, you know, 
we've got the gray zone stuff where people can kind of disagree yeah. and, you know, can get polarizing. What about the stuff that's just outright pretty concerning? And, you know, that older age in terrorism, which is just like, we might not have a definition for it universally, but like, we kind of know it when we see it, you know, and it's <laughs> one of those things. It's like, yeah. what if you, yeah, what if you see someone? Line. Yeah. Right. It, that's, you're like, oh, okay. What I do mean, I do? I think there's two things. And I've talked to a lot of people, particularly during this pandemic, mm. because we're in a very specific moment in history around the pandemic where particularly very close friends of mine that say, oh my gosh, my uncle or father or aunt or sister is a total QAnon junkie. I had no idea. I had no idea. And they are spitting vitriol and now they're not going to get the vaccine or, or, oh my God, did you know that governments are doing this? And I mean, I, I have to say, if you've ever worked with governments, it's kind of hard to think that there's this big global cabal because you think, gosh, that, that person couldn't get their Zoom to work. How are they going to coordinate a big global cabal <laughs> around the world? But that being said, I do think we're at this moment where you have a choice to engage or not engage. That's choice number one. You see something, at the very least, if it's really crossing a line, if something is hate speech or something is um, COVID denial or something that would cross a company's terms of service. The one thing mm -hmm. I would remind people is that that flagging process is anonymous. Right. It's not even allowed to be requested by government requests for data. So if you flag, even if it's your slightly racist aunt, if someone has one of those, everyone has one, then Unfortunately, you they could do. flag their content and nobody will ever know, particularly that person that you flagged it, but that will help potentially get it removed. Or not. Sometimes it really depends on the policy or the nuance of that content. So that's one thing. The second thing is you don't have to engage if you don't feel comfortable engaging. But if you do engage, there's some good, maybe I can find a pamphlet to send around to attach to this. There was some good oh, work yeah. done by ISD about the trade-offs of engagement because you don't want to oh, put yourself great. at risk by engagement. That's you right. could get bullying and harassment. And some people yeah. are very open to engage and some people aren't. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. I don't like being told I'm wrong. I think I'm I clever. Don't. I think I know everything, right? So mm. nobody wants to be told they're wrong. And and so finding a point of common ground or actually just finding a point of interest saying, huh, I, I'd never heard that. In fact, I heard the opposite. You know, where, where did you find that? Mm. Or actually, wow, that's, I'd not heard that before. Would you mind talking me through that? Because I, I've actually found this. So not right. coming at it antagonistically, but actually coming at it as a conversation. Civil discourse, surprisingly enough, does go a long way. Finding people at common ground instead of calling them a lunatic or saying that they're the devil or saying yeah. that they're wrong doesn't, yeah. surprisingly, doesn't go very far. And so if you have the time and space to give a little or have a couple articles that you would point and say, huh, that's funny, I found the opposite, but I'd love to talk through that with you, or could you explain yeah. more? Then you get to a point where you can have a conversation. That goes a lot further than just trying to tell right. someone they're wrong. And really, that's just all examples of living, breathing counter-speech, isn't it? Yeah, counter-speech, again, comes in many forms. Yeah. Comes in many well, forms. That's right. Well, Erin, I'm conscious of your time, and I think that's probably a pretty nice place to wrap up. Again, thank you so much for your time. I could sit under the learning tree with you for a very long time and just listen. Oh, likewise. Um, but for, you do yeah. incredible work with your team uh, as well. I appreciate that a lot. That means the world coming from you. For listeners who want to learn more about what you do or where can uh, you know, or some of the stuff you've been up to, where can they find you? Well, there's quite a lot of information on gifct.org, so G-I-F-C-T.org. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I mean, I, I post some of my my own research and what's come out on my own little website. I hate saying it out loud because it sounds really <laughs> right, but it's That's mostly fine. just to keep track of things like that. But of there's also if if I don't know how this goes out, but I can also send a few links. Those studies yeah. that I talked about, particularly the search redirect and AB study for counter speech deployment actually came out recently. Great. Um, and I'm very, I'm very proud that we were able to get it out. And it was, yeah, congratulations. Studies. That's massive. Thank you. And it's again, yeah. a labor of love with two of my co-authors. It came out yeah. in studies in conflict and terrorism and it's open access. So it's not behind a paywall, which oh, is always great. the next big question. Great. We'll be sure to share that. Uh, basically every episode has its own suite of resources and we oh, can great. talk more about what you'd like to include in that. So, you know, the conversation just doesn't start and end here. But um, yeah, thank you so much, Erin. And, you know, all the best and hopefully see you for a part two. Absolutely. There's always more to be done. But, you know, we're sitting here fighting the good fight. The masochism continues. Oh, thank you for all your hard work. Thanks, Erin. Talk to you soon. You have been listening to Undesign a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.